0: kind of Casper the Friendly Ghost, and, and I probably have a crew here that's old enough to remember Casper. Any younger ones, you might have no idea what I'm even talking about, Casper the Friendly Ghost. But when people think of ghosts, that's kind of like what they think of, of like a sheet flying around with like eyes, you know, holes cut out for eyes and a mouth, uh, but, but that is not obviously what we are talking about. Others, uh, I, I, I work with a lady that... Um, she and her husband are very much into ghost hunting. Um, and, and I've seen some of the pictures that she's shown me, and it's kind of like, uh, what, behind the water drop on the lens? Like, no, no, that is the ghost. I'm like, well, okay. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's that's not what we're talking about either. Uh, you know, a lot of kind of the new age kind of ghost thing is, you know, like leftover energy you know, like whether it's good or bad, and, and, and things like that, I, you know, you're going to be surprised. I'm going to read you actually several definitions, uh, and none of them actually have that as a definition. It's interesting. The classical definition of a ghost is not how modern, you know, people think of, of ghosts. So let me f- first read you the Oxford Languages definition. It says, an apparition of a dead person which is believed to appear or become manifest to the living typically as a nebulous image merriam-webster a disembodied soul Uh, another definition that merriam-webster has is a spirit or a demon okay let me read um wikipedia's definition because again they kind of are more detailed uh in in their definition it says in folklore a ghost is the soul or spirit of a dead person or non-human animal that is believed to be able to appear to the living in ghost lore descriptions of ghosts vary widely from an invisible presence to translucent or barely visible wispy shapes to realistic lifelike forms um and then they have a, a note actually here about uh contacting the dead. It says, the deliberate attempt to contact the spirit of a deceased person is known as necromancy or in spiritism as a seance. And we will actually talk a little bit more about that today as we look at the topic of of ghosts. Um, So that's basically the definition of a ghost. It is a spirit, the soul of a dead person. It is a disembodied uh, spirit that is made manifest to the living. Well, if that is the classical definition of a ghost, then I would make the argument that the Bible does say, not only, not only leaves it open that there are ghosts, the Bible says that there are ghosts. We're going to look at a couple different passages today and then talk a little bit about what this, this means and, 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 and the significance of it. First turn to 1 Samuel 28. 1 Samuel 28, verses 17 through 19, Now, or 7 through 19, excuse me. At this point, and some of you know this story already, but for those of you who don't, I'll give you the background, Uh, Saul has been basically, God has pulled his hand of of protection and his really his blessing off of, of, of King Saul because of Saul's sins. Uh, and, and Saul has gone the way of, of so many and, and he's fallen away from the Lord and God basically has said to him, I'll no longer bless you know, your kingship and I'm gonna remove the kingdom from you and I'm gonna give it to David. Um, the prophet Samuel has died at this point. Samuel, just a few passages before this, I think it's chapter 25. Samuel dies. OK? And so Samuel is no longer there. Um, Samuel is one of the most fascinating characters in, in the entire Bible. Uh, he was the last of the judges, and also, in many ways, kind of the, 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 kind of the open door to the time of the prophets. He was also the kingmaker. Uh, Samuel is the one who who crowned Saul, Israel's first king, and and, and he's the one who basically anointed David, even though David was not yet officially made king. So Samuel is a fascinating man. He was raised by uh, the high priest, uh, became a prophet, uh, and, and was also a judge before the king. So he ended you know, the time of the judges and went right into the time of the kings and crowned the first king. So he's an absolutely fascinating person, an amazingly godly, uh, Christ-like person. And he is dead at this point. And Saul is desperate because he's about to go into battle with the Philistines. uh, And he's very afraid. He knows God has removed his blessing and his protection from him. And he's desperate to talk to Samuel, but Samuel is dead. Now, part of what Saul did when Saul was actually living for the Lord and doing the job the way he was supposed to is he had gotten rid of all the, the witches and, and the mediums from Israel. God said that, that that there's to be none of that in my land amongst my people. And Saul had had driven them all out. But now we see Saul, a completely different Saul, Saul desperate and and in the midst of his sin. Um, And let's begin with verse 7. It says, Saul then said to his advisors, find a woman who is a medium so I can go ask her what to do. So he is now turning to the very people, the very things that he has driven out, okay? His advisors replied, there is a medium at Endor, which I've always found actually fascinating The divisors know she's there. You know, they've given up on the whole driving them out thing evidently and they kind of know that she's there. She probably had quite a reputation. So Saul disguised himself by wearing ordinary clothing instead of his royal robes. Then he went to the woman's home at night accompanied by two of his men I have to, talk to a, uh, I have to talk to a man who has died, he said. Will you call up his spirit for me? She, this is her response. Are you trying to get me killed, the woman demand, demanded. You know that Saul has outlawed all the mediums and all who consult the spirits of the dead. Why are you setting a trap for me? But Saul took an oath in the name of the Lord and promised, as surely as the Lord lives, nothing bad will happen to you for doing this. Finally, the woman said, Well, whose spirit do you want me to call up? And he says, call up Samuel, Uh, Saul replied. Now, I just want to step back for a second here and say that right there that should have been a clue to her that like this is not a good deal here. Uh, You know, I'm probably like, you know, I should probably just kind of back out of this while I have a chance when it says call up Samuel because that's a confrontation that can't go well. But, you know, hey, I'm sure he was paying her handsomely When the woman saw Samuel, she screamed, you deceived me, you are Saul. Now, I would have thought she'd have realized that when he said, call up Samuel, but evidently it wasn't until she actually saw Samuel like, you know, manifesting, and and then it kind of all dawned on her, oh no, what have I gotten myself into? Don't be afraid, the king told her. What do you see? Uh, now, everybody's tra- translations are a little different here. Uh, in mine, it says, I see a God, or, li- or literally gods, coming up out of the earth. And some of you, uh, tell me what different ones of you have. Spirit, yeah, spirit. Any others? Some may have Elohim, I- I'm not sure. Okay, spirit, or as, as she puts it, uh, you know, in-, in the NLT, a, a god, or gods says, what does he look like, Saul asked. He is an old man wrapped in a robe, she replied. Saul realized it was Samuel and he fell to the ground before him. Why have you disturbed me by calling me back, Samuel asked Saul. Because I am in deep trouble, Saul replied. Boy, there was never more appropriate words ever spoken. <laughs> he's going to find out just how deep in trouble he's in here in a second. The Philistines are at war with me and God has left me and won't reply by prophets or dreams. So I have called for you to tell me what to do. But Samuel replied, why ask me since the Lord has left you and has become your enemy? In other words, what's there to ask me about? You know, once God's left you and, 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 and you know he's decided to fight against you, there isn't anything anybody can do. Like what, 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 are, you, you know, what are you asking me for? The Lord has done just as He said He would do. He has torn the kingdom from you and given it to your rival David. And we're going we're to stop right there. We don't really need to go any further. Um, so, you know, well, actually, let me let me just read a couple more verses and kind of give you the kind of the doom of, of of Saul. The Lord has done this uh, to you today because you refused to carry out His fierce anger against the Amalekites. What more? Uh, what's more, the Lord will hand you. And the army of Israel over to the Philistines tomorrow. Tomorrow, and you and your sons will be here with me. The Lord will bring down the entire army of Israel in defeat. Uh oh, not a good, not a good idea. Uh, found out what he didn't really want to know. Uh, tomorrow, you guys, you and your sons are going to be right here with me in the in in the afterlife in in the underworld. Is basically what he's saying. You'll be dead just like me. So that backfired. But our point today is not so much the story of Saul. It's the fact that we have here, by the definition of a ghost, we have a ghost. We have the spirit of a dead person that has appeared to the living. And the, and it's in the Bible, and the Bible is speaking about it. Now, there are so many different opinions on this. on. What has happened here? I've read some, well, this is probably the first time this woman ever actually did it because all the other times she was just a fake and it's not real and and, and that's why she was surprised and scared when she saw the apparition. Uh, You know, I don't know. I can't quite buy that because I don't think the text itself supports that. There's nothing in the text that leads us to that position. Now, we don't know if she's successfully seen other apparitions at any point or not. There's nothing that tells us that either. So we really can't read any more into the text than what's in the text. But we know in at least this instance, she saw a ghost. And it was the ghost of Samuel. You know, and it was not a pleasant experience for Saul. He found out what he didn't want to know. So we have at least one biblical appearance of what would be considered a ghost classically a ghost let's look at a New Testament passage turn over to Matthew chapter 17 we're going to look at verses 1 through 8 this is the 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 mount of transfiguration says, so six days after Jesus took Peter and the two brothers, James and John, and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Essentially, they, they get a glimpse into Jesus as he is in it glorified. You know, they're getting a bit of a glimpse and just... You know, they, they've seen Jesus do miracles and, and, and so many things, but now they're getting a little bit of glimpse of, of just what he will be like in glory, and it's awe-inspiring, you know? And, and so they, they, this, is, this is how they see Jesus. But then look at verse three. Then suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. Now, Moses and Elijah have been dead for, for hundreds and hundreds of years at this point. Essentially, you have another, another appearance of ghosts. I want you to, to it, it, as we go on, uh, you know, notice this. Peter exclaimed, Lord, it's wonderful for us to be here. If you want, I'll make three shelters as memorials, uh, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So obviously Jesus is not the only one seeing them. Peter and James and John are also seeing them. So you have spirits that have become manifest to Peter and James and John. Now my crazy mind all, always begins by asking a thousand questions. One: How did they know what Moses and Elijah looked like? It's not like they had pictures around, or, you know, or what, looking at like an old videotape of Moses and Elijah. They hadn't seen the Ten Commandments yet. They didn't know he looked like Charlton Heston, you know? And so how did did they know? But obviously somehow they did, whether they were told in the process or whether it was just like all of a sudden they just knew. But they understood this was Moses and Elijah. And they were so real to them and the experience was so real, Peter does something really stupid and he basically says, let me make like a memorial for all three of you. Now, theologians have discussed this passage for, you know, for, for several millennia now, um, and just what is going on here? It's interesting because, so much like Samuel, Moses was not a judge, but Moses was Moses was a prophet. Uh, you know, many people would consider him the first true prophet and maybe the greatest of all the prophets, but he's not in the time of the prophets. He's in many ways a precursor to the prophets. And so Moses is not generally known as much for his prophetic abilities as he is as the lawgiver. And in Israel, amongst the Jews, that's how Moses was seen. He was the lawgiver. In fact, you see Jesus say that on numerous occasions where someone will try to ask him something or trick him, and he will say, what does Moses say? Well, Moses wasn't alive. He wasn't saying anything. What Jesus meant by that is what did the law say? But Moses was the one who was the giver of the law. Jesus said of the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. So when they tell you what the law says, obey them, but don't ever live like them, he tells them. They're horrible people. Don't live like them. But when they give you the law, listen, because they're in Moses' seat. Jesus isn't saying Moses made up the law or anything like that. What he he is crediting Moses as the lawgiver, which is how the Bible credits him. God chose to give Moses that great you know that great blessing of being the one who gave the the, the law, the first five books of the Bible to the Jewish people. So and essentially he is the doorway into the law. And Elijah, though not the first prophet, you know, like I said, Moses came before him, Samuel came before him. Samuel's kind of almost like, uh, you remember houses when they used to have breezeways or summer kitchens? Kind of you walked into the breezeway before you got into the house? He's kind of like the breezeway to the prophets. You know, you you enter Samuel's time before you enter the time of the prophets. He leads up to it. But the kings of Israel were so bad, so horrible, of, of Israel and Judah, that the real... Spiritual power during the time of the kings was the prophets. And, and God led those prophets, and, and Elijah was kind of like the, 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 the prophet of the prophets. He was, he was kind of the doorway into the, to the house of the prophets, the time of the prophets. In fact, he and his successor, Eli, Elisha, were the two greatest miracle workers in the Bible until the time of Christ. So, you know, you have these three, you have Jesus, you have Moses, you have Elijah. So in some ways, I get Peter. Peter's like, oh my gosh, like this is like the Christ, this is the law, this is the prophets. Oh my goodness, we need to set up like three memorials. But he's losing sight of the fact that everything that they were about was all leading to Jesus. And that's kind of what the Mount of Transfiguration is about. It's to show that the law and the prophets lead to Christ. And so God responds to this. But even as he spoke, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, "Uh, This is my dearly dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Listen to him. His disciples were terrified and fell face down on the ground. Then Jesus came over to them, touched them. Get up, he said, Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus. And that's kind of the point. But again, for our purposes today, for all the great theological insight to this passage, for our purposes today, again, we have the sighting of two ghosts. This time seen not just by Jesus, not just by one person, but seen also by Peter, James, and John. So clearly, the Bible holds out the fact that ghosts exist. And if a ghost is the spirit of the the dead, the Bible tells us that our spirits will live on. Our spirits will live on forever. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to manifest to people. And here's the interesting question Does this mean that, like, you know, all the ghost stories that you hear by people are real? No, it doesn't. I don't see anything in the Bible that, that argues that this is a normal happening. In fact, I know of only two places that it's happened in the Bible. So, you know, so, so I don't think this is a normal thing. I don't think, like, every kind of haunt that you hear about out in the world is real. I think more often than not, probably 90 point, 99.9% of the time, it's not real. However, we as Christians cannot rule it out. We can't simply because the Bible in both the Old and New Testament shows us times where it happens. So God is obviously able to you know, either allow a person to come back and, and be seen by the living or cause it himself. God can do that. Yeah, you know, you know, Often people look at the passage uh, in 2 Corinthians 5 and I'm gonna turn there and read that. It, it, you, you can or you don't have to, it's up to you. But It says, uh, so we are always confident, even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord. For we live by believing and not by seeing. Yes, we are fully confident, and we would rather be away from these bodies, uh, for then we will be at home with the Lord. So people look at that and they say, well, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So there can't be ghosts. Well, that didn't stop Moses and Elijah. You know, and, and and I don't see any reason why. You know, what basically Paul is saying there, we're we're living in this world, and I would rather be with Jesus. And I know that when I die, that's where I'll go. He's not ruling out the possibility that God could ever, you know, kind of bring back His ghost or anything like that. We take too much from that passage. You know, it's meant as as as. You know the, that we should live by faith while we're on this world and it's also meant you know as as kind of uh you know giving us courage because we know that when we're we die we will be with the Lord but that's really the purpose of the passage it's not necessarily it's not dealing with ghosts at all so I think we see biblically that there are ghosts however it's probably not a a, a normal occurrence and most of what is out there in this world that's being talked about, I doubt very seriously if those things are real. However, our position should be somewhere in between the two extremes. We can't completely rule it out because we have examples in the Bible. We also can't completely adopt the position that, boy, ghosts are just running around everywhere. Neither one of those things is biblically accurate. The truth is somewhere in the middle. It is possible, but it seems to be on very limited moments, possibly even only when God, you know, basically wants it to happen in some way. Yeah, that that's what it seems to be. Now, interesting, I didn't look these up, but it's interesting that clearly Jesus' followers. Believe this was all possible because when Jesus appeared to them, and the, uh, you know, remember when Jesus appeared to the disciples and they were there eating after his uh, after his death and his resurrection, what did they be, what did they think immediately? It was his ghost, yeah, you know. And Peter, when Peter was in prison and and appeared to you know the the, the people there at Jerusalem, and, and what did they say? Well, we thought it was his ghost. So obviously. The the primitive church believed it was possible. In fact, some of them had seen it. So, you know, again, the Bible says some interesting things when we actually read it and think about what it's actually saying. This, you know, is at least a possibility. But probably not, uh, in fact, I would say much more than probably not, I would say definitely not a normal thing. This This is more, you know, miraculous moments that are meant for a specific thing. So it's not impossible that this could happen, but it's not an everyday occurrence. All right. I hesitate to do this, but any questions? Don't ask any, I can't answer. Yeah. Um, it was not only women, but it, it was probably more often than not, it was, it was known as being women. Yeah, we'll, we'll actually talk about that here in a second. Yeah. Next thing I want to talk about is, is witches and witchcraft. Now, again, let me, let me read uh, the Merriam-Webster definition of witchcraft. The use of sorcery or magic, communication with the devil or with a familiar Rituals and practices that incorporate belief and magic and that are associated especially with neo-pagan traditions and religions, such as Wicca, which is a basically a religion today. Uh, you know, it, it, it exists today. I've actually met quite a number of modern day witches. I've worked with a number of them. Um, that is essentially what witchcraft is. It's sorcery or magic. Uh, or the communications with, a, with the devil or with a familiar, uh, and it's also kind of rituals and practices that included, and it's, it's obvious from the passage in, in, in 1 Samuel, it included things like being a medium. That was kind of all, in, in, in the world of the Bible, that was all kind of lumped together as kind of a, a one thing. Sorcery, witchcraft included things like necromancy, which was calling up the dead, uh, things like astrology. Uh, you know, trying to, to read uh, the future and either the stars or uh, the people around Israel, you know, their version of, of astrology could be pretty graphic. I mean, they like take sheep entrails and try to read like the future and the entrails of sheep and, and there was all kinds of, of crazy things. Um, what we mostly think of as, as witches today is mostly just kind of modern folklore. Uh things from like the line, the Witch, in the Wardrobe or Harry Potter and things like that. Uh, there, there are some resemblance in those things, uh, but there's also some great departures from what real witchcraft was during the time of the Bible. Witchcraft was absolutely forbidden in the Bible. I mean, we've already read the, the story of, of the, the witch or the medium of Endor. And as she points out in the story, what are you trying to do, kill me? Because she understood that in Israel it was absolutely forbidden. You know, God wanted none of it in Israel. Let me read a couple of passages that, that point out the, the Old Testament view of, of witchcraft. Um, turn to Leviticus chapter 19. Oops. Got so many passages marked today, I'm skipping over them. Leviticus 19, 27, and then we'll jump over to chapter 20, or I mean nineteen 26, we'll jump over to chapter 20, verse 27. Leviticus 19, 26 says, do not eat meat that has been drained of its blood. Do not practice fortune-telling or witchcraft. So fortune-telling and witchcraft are kind of lumped into the same thing. Like I said last week, please don't tell me you read your horoscope. Please don't tell me that. You know, we are not to practice fortune telling of any sort. Okay? If you jump over to chapter 20 and look at verse 27, it says what men and women among you who act as mediums or who consult the spirits of the dead must be put to death by stoning, they are guilty of a capital offense. You have to understand that in the biblical world to consort with the dead was, was generally considered to consort with an evil spirit, that the ones that they would be consorting with uh, would not normally be just the ghost of, like, you know, Bob down the street. It would be like an evil spirit. Samuel was probably a rare moment where it would actually be a godly person. That probably has more to do with why she was so afraid. It's like, oh, no, this is not good. You know, uh, so it was absolutely forbidden. Turn over to Deuteronomy, and we read this the other week, uh, but it's worth reading again because it's the strongest, probably, prohibition against uh, against witchcraft. Deuteronomy eighteen verses nine through twelve it says, "When you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you." Be very careful not to imitate the detestable customs of the nations living there. By the way, the Canaanites were steeped in witchcraft. In fact, the Canaanites were, the Mesopotamian people were, the Egyptian people were. So literally, Israel is coming out of Egypt, going to Canaan. Israel's background, Abraham, is from Mesopotamia. And Mesopotamia would hold a... a, a, continuing place throughout Jewish history. In fact, the ones who would overthrow the the 10 northern tribes was Assyria. The ones who would overthrow the the two southern tribes was Babylon, which essentially encompasses that area of Mesopotamia. The people surrounding Israel were were steeped in in witchcraft and demonology. And they understood, for the most part, that these were demons. They embraced that. But they understood that that's what it was, okay? And and there's like a whole catalog, like an ancient writing that, you know, of of like a list of demons and stuff that the Babylonians, you know, worshiped and consulted with and things. And so, you know, Israel is told, don't have anything to do with this. This is vile. Don't imitate the detestable customs of the nations living there, for example, never sacrifice your son or daughter as a burnt offering. The Canaanites were infamous in their own world for doing this. In fact, even the rest of the people around them who did horrible things saw the Canaanites as horrible. It's like, oh my goodness, those people are terrible. You know? So, you know, it, it was the, the Canaanites were known for this. Do not let your people practice fortune telling. Or use sorcery, or interpret omens, or engage in witchcraft, or cast spells, or function as mediums or psychics, or call forth the spirits of the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. It is because the other nations have done these detestable things that the Lord your God will drive them out ahead of you. So God says very clearly, I don't want you to have anything to do with this, and it's actually because of these practices that I'm going to drive them out and give you their land. He'd given them essentially 400 years to repent. He had talked about doing this hundreds of years ago, but says the iniquity uh, you know, of the Amorites, which is essentially this same people, the Canaanites, says that their iniquity isn't complete yet. I'm going to give them more time. And he essentially gives them the 400 years that Israel is in Egypt to repent and turn back, but they, they don't, and finally God says, okay, enough. But he warns his own people don't have anything to do with this. Now, that's what witchcraft is. Here's the question again. Did it contain any real power? Was there, was there any reality behind any of it? Okay, well, I want to turn to a passage, turn to Exodus chapter 8, verse 7. And this is really the only example I really know of biblically where we can kind of answer this question as yes. This is talking about the confrontation between Moses and Aaron and the magicians of Egypt as a part of God getting his people out of Egypt. And, and, and leading up to this, uh, in fact, let me, let's just start by, by reading verse, verse five uh, up, to, up to verse seven. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, raise the staff in your hand over all the rivers, canals, and, and, and ponds of Egypt, and bring up frogs over all the land. So Aaron raised his hand over the waters of Egypt, and frogs came up and covered the whole land. Now, notice what it said here. But the magicians were able to do the same thing with their magic. They, too, caused frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. Later on, uh, you know, they, they create snakes. They turn their, their rods into into snakes, and Moses, uh, you know, Aaron has, has Aaron throw down his rod, and it becomes a snake and eats theirs. Basically saying, hey, yours is only magic. Ours is the power of God. You would you lose this one hands down, but it's very clear that they had real magical abilities. Now again, does that mean that all like the people who say they're practicing magic, practicing witchcraft, you know, have abilities to do, you know, m- magical things? No, it doesn't. In fact, the, the, you know, most of the, the people that I have met through the years, like they've worked with, uh, it, it, you know, some of these days, I'm just going to ask one of them, like, do you actually believe you can cast spells? Um, you know, just see what their answer would be. But most of, most of, of them, it's, it, they see it as more of like a, a nature religion, like worshiping nature and the spirits of trees and rocks and, 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 and you know, streams and things like that. Now, that's still strictly forbidden by the Lord. That's still detestable to the Lord. They're worshiping the creature and not the creator. But most, you know, most of them don't really see it in this same way. You know, uh, uh, again, this is the world of the Bible. I, I mean, this—the Jews were surrounded by people who believed in these supernatural powers, and they even understood that they came from demons, they came from evil sources, and they were still okay with doing it. And God says it's detestable to me. And I'll drive them out, and I don't want you to have anything to do with it. But clearly, at least to some, to some stage, they had real abilities to do certain miraculous things. And again, I've read a lot of scholars, a lot of like, Christian apologists and stuff, who've tr- you know, tried to argue different ways of understanding this. I, I just don't buy it. At some point, again, you have to accept the supernatural worldview of the Bible. The Bible's a supernatural book when we like it and when we don't. You know, and that's the problem. We kind of like the supernatural parts that are good for us, but we want to kind of poo-hoo the ones that aren't. Well, we can't really do that. And, and so clearly witchcraft was a real thing in, in, in the ancient world. And, and, you know, I'm not saying this doesn't exist today. I'm just saying most of what we see today is very different than this. You know, but, but it, it, it's, it's a real thing. And so here's the thing for us. Don't have anything to do with it. Don't have anything to do with it. You know, the, 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 that practice of witchcraft, even if it's something as simple as like reading your horoscope or like going to, to like an astrologer or something, don't do it. Don't do it. God doesn't want you to have anything to do with that. What, what did we just see earlier in that one passage? It says we are to live by faith. That's, that's Paul's answer to this. The just shall live by faith. We're not there yet. We're not with Christ yet. When we die, we'll be with him. And Paul's saying, man, that'll be great. I wish, I'm ready for that. You know, I'm ready for that at any point. But I'm not there yet, so I'm supposed to live by faith now. Live trusting in the Lord. So, you know, it, it, it just don't have anything to do with it. All right, next thing. Giants or monsters? All right. Start with a definition. And I should have written down my source. I didn't write it down. Actually, I don't remember which dictionary I got this out of. An imaginary or mythical being of human form but super, superhuman size, an abnormally tall or large person, animal, or plant. Basically, those are two definitions. One is kind of the... Um, Folklore giant of like enormous proportions, you know, like Jack and the Beanstalk, like 100 foot tall, that kind of stuff. And the other one is just someone or something, an animal, even an animal or a plant that we call a giant because it's of abnormal size, okay? It, it, it's, it's far bigger than, than normal. All right, what's the Bible say about it? Well, turn over to Genesis chapter six. We read this a few weeks ago. We looked at the sons of God, but look at Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Then the people began to multiply on the earth, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the beautiful women and took any they wanted as their wives. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not put up with humans for such a long time, for they are only mortal flesh. In the future, their normal lifespan will be no more than 120 years. In those days and for some time after, Giant Nephilites lived on the earth for whenever the sons of God uh, had intercourse with women, they gave birth to children who became the heroes and famous warriors of ancient times. We do not have anywhere near the time to explore this as completely as what it would be fun to do. Um, There, you would not believe the ancient stories of both the Jews and the people around them when it came to, these giants. How many of you have ever heard of the e- Epic of Gilgamesh or Gilgamesh? So, yes, it, 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 Gilgamesh was considered to be a giant. And in, in fact, many ancient people considered him to be the same person as Nimrod in the Bible. That, that Nimrod is actually the Bible's name for that same character. And again, we don't have the time to get into all these stories, but it is absolutely fascinating to, to kind of read some of these stories. Uh, some of these accounts. Um, Biblically, giants existed. They existed before the flood, and you know, the even more interesting thing is they existed after the flood. Look at Numbers chapter 13, verse 33. Now, this is the scouting report from the, the, the... the spies that went into the land of Canaan for the people of Israel when they were about ready to cross in. And remember, they didn't go in because they were afraid at the report of the, of the spies. This is the report of the spies, the last verse of it. Verse 33, we even saw giants, and that's the Hebrew word Nephilim. Those are the only two times the word is used in the Old Testament. There's other names that are also used for giant. There's the, the Anakim, which are, are Anak, remember Remember, I taught you about Hebrew? If you add an I-M on the end, it makes it plural. So there's the Anak or the Anakim, which is multiple ones, and there's also the Rephaim, okay? Uh, they, they're all words for gigantic people. We, saw, uh, we even saw giants or Nephilim that were descendants of Anak. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers, and that's what they thought too, they were dismissive of, of, of them. They, that, that's really what scared the people. They're like, man, everything Jesus said, or not, everything that, that God told them through Moses was, was correct. Man, this land's awesome. It's everything we want. But man, there's these big dudes there. And they're really big. And we kinda like, we're walking around there and we look up at these guys and like, ooh, they're really big. And they looked at us and like, you are really small. And we don't want anything to do with them. We can't defeat them. There are some Old Testament scholars that actually, they, they, they say that, that the mandate to wipe out the people of Canaan was, was actually to wipe out the giants. And they make a very convincing argument that that's what God was really about, is, is wipe out the, every last one of these giants because they're the descendants of, of these illicit, you know, romantic trysts between the sons of God, and, and, and human women. And they corrupted the world before the flood and, and you know, very likely could have done the same thing after the flood. And so there are those that, that think that the, you know, that mandate to wipe out the people of Canaan was not the everyday people. It was, it was aimed at, at the descendants of the giants. Now, again, we don't have time to get into all that. There's, the, the material on this alone is staggering. It's unbelievable. Um, You know, so it, giants existed biblically. Uh, th- there, there's really no doubt about it. Uh, uh, you know, I, I mean, the, the Bible clearly teaches, this, le- teaches it. Let me read a, a section here from a book by Michael Heiser, His unseen Realm, about uh, giants. The word Nephilim op- op- occurs twice in the Hebrew Bible. In both cases, the Septuagint, translated the term with gigas which means giant given the backdrop we've covered it would seem obvious that nephilim ought to be understood as giants now he gets into the a technical argument here about the debate over how to translate it and some some translate it as fallen ones okay that what it should mean is not giant, but fallen ones, or ones that fall upon somebody else, basically making the argument, hey, they're just humans that are just really violent people. But he makes the argument that really doesn't matter. He disagrees with it, but he he makes the argument it really doesn't matter. He says, in reality, it doesn't matter whether fallen ones is the translation. In both the Mesopotamian context and the context of, of latter Second Temple Jewish thought, their fathers are divine, and the Nephilim, however translated, are still described as giants. So whether you translate it fallen ones or not, they're still considered giants by the Jewish people. And that's not debatable. We know that's what they thought they were. you know. And so his point is, hey, this, this little debate amongst like Hebrew scholars is, is fine and dandy, but it really doesn't mean anything. It's just an, an attempt to try to avoid what What's obvious, consequently, insisting the name means fallen produces no argument to counter the supernatural interpretation. And he goes on to say, despite the uselessness of the argument, I'm not inclined to concede the point. And he goes on to make the argument for why he considers it to be, um, you know, the the word to be giant. And I'm not going to get into the technical Hebrew argument. We don't have time for that uh, here today. But um, so basically, giants existed. Now, here's the the real question. How big were they? How big were they? Okay, Uh, I I mean, let's turn over to 1 Samuel. Let's look at chapter 17, and we're gonna look at, at verse 4. The only measurement we get for a giant in the Bible is for Goliath, okay, and there's great debate over this measurement. There's one other possible passage, the the bed of Og. Og was a a, a king who was considered a giant, and he had this, like, enormous bed, uh, but Most scholars dismiss that because they think the size of his bed was more to associate him with the ancient Babylonian god Marduk who was said to to basically sleep in a bed of that size. So it probably doesn't tell us anything about how big Og actually was. We just know the size of his bed because he was associating himself with Marduk. So the only real measurement, biblically, for a giant is Goliath. Look at Goliath first 1 Samuel 174 then Goliath a Philistine champion from Gath came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel he was over nine feet tall now how many of you have that does anybody have a different translation yes how tall do you have what's that Six cubits in a span. Six cubits in a span is essentially nine foot nine, nine foot ten, something along those lines. Let me read the note that I have at the bottom here. In Hebrew, this is six cubits in one span, which totals about 9.75 feet or three meters. However, you know, and this is where this debate gets fascinating, the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Greek version, the Septuagint, read four cubits and one span okay which totals about 6.75 feet or 2 meters which would instead of 9 foot 9 9 foot 10 would put him somewhere in the in the neighborhood of 6 foot 6 to say 6 foot 10 which is the better translation almost surely the dead sea scrolls and septuagint old testament scholars When they come to a dispute between the Masoretic text and the other texts, especially the Dead Sea Scrolls, they almost always take the Dead Sea Scrolls. So the reality is he was probably not over nine feet tall. However, the average height, and I I read the the results of a study actually in in Heiser's book. Um, In fact, I think I wrote this down. Yeah. Let me look this up real quick for you. I'll read this. How tall were the biblical giants? The only measurement for a giant that exists in the biblical text is that of Goliath. The traditional or Masoretic text uh, has him at at six cubits in a span, roughly 9 feet 9 inches. Dead Sea Scrolls reading of 1 Samuel 7.4 disagrees, has Goliath at four cubits and a span, or six foot six. Virtually all scholars consider the Dead Sea Scrolls reading superior and authentic. Archaeological work across the ancient Near East confirms that six and a half feet tall was, by the standards of the day, a giant. Okay? One scholar of Israelite culture notes that the average height of an ancient Israelite in the patriarchal period was around five feet so the average height of, of the ancient Israelites was about five foot tall. We tend to think of, of, of them as like because we think of them as such heroes, we think of these like gigantic guys like David and you know Saul was said to be very large for his size, but that would probably be something more along the lines of, say, five ten, six six foot. and he was almost gigantic. Imagine Ben Souders, who's six foot eight. Standing beside someone who's five foot. How many of you remember Lauren Allen? Yeah. Remember little Lauren standing beside Ben? You get the idea. Giants. That is probably the accurate biblical view of of giants. They were probably not nine foot tall. Some online sources are so ridiculous, they'll have like, you know, at at tens of feet, if not even hundreds of feet tall, and it, it becomes almost laughable. Uh, you know, so their size was probably not quite as big as what we take them to be. What were they like? Well, again, let me read a note here from Dr. Heiser. They were not good. Let's put it that way. The nephilim are cast as mighty warriors. It uses the term gabor, or again, if you make it plural, gaborum, which means mighty warriors and men of renown, literally, literally men of the name or men of the Shem, okay? You know, when, when the Bible talks about them in, in these ancient contexts, especially in Genesis 6, one through four, it says they were the, the mighty you know, warriors. They were the geborim. that's the Hebrew word it uses, the gaborim, uh and, and they were the Shem. So it literally means they were the, the, the mighty warriors and the men of renown or men of the name. They were trying to make a name for themselves, okay? They became famous. They became, uh, you know, they got a name because of of their power, because of their looks. Remember, the Bible says that essentially they are part divine and part human. What would that even look like? Besides the gigantic size, what would it look like? Immediately after the flood, Nimrod, whose name most likely means rebellion, is called a Gabor, a mighty warrior, mighty hunter is how it's put sometimes. Nimrod is cast as the progenitor of the civilizations of Assyria and Babylon, who, by the way, were the ones that overthrew Israel. Many people, when they read about Nimrod, they, well, he was a mighty hunter. That means he was like the greatest hunter of all times. Well, there's tremendous amount of like Nimrod folklore in ancient Israel. And some consider him a great hunter. But what he really was more of a hunter of was, was human beings. He was violent and aggressive and would defeat people either by scheme or by, night, by might. He was a conqueror. That's really more of what the Bible is saying about him. He was not a good guy. And he was seen almost universally in the ancient world as not really being a good guy. So the giants were not good people. They were the corruptors of the world. Interestingly enough, all the people around Israel saw them as like mighty heroes and the people who passed down like great ancient knowledge to them. But the Jews saw them completely differently. They saw them as the corruptors of the world and the ones who led to the, to the destruction of the world at the time of Noah. All right, real quick, quickly, one last thing. You see on point four, I have Lilith. There's two ancient Jewish folklores I wanted to include in this discussion today, um, things that were believed by at least some Jews, not all, but probably most, uh, one is the golem, the golem, the not, not golem from Lord of the Rings, golem basically. The the golem were a a being that was created out of dirt, and then enchanted magically to become alive, and essentially were used as like protectors or assassins for the Jewish people. Now, obviously, not th- this. It did exist, that idea existed back in biblical times, it became much more of a thing in like middle ages, you know, middle age, you know, Judaism, uh, probably because the fact they were persecuted everywhere they went and it was nice to have the folklore of being able to make like a defender who could go out and defend them. But there's probably no actual truth to the golem. Okay, and the the word is mentioned once in the Bible, but not in the context of like a creature that's created. It basically is talking about like kind of the dirt, (laughs) you know, so it's, even though the term is used, it's not used in the way it was used in ancient Jewish folk lore. Lilith, however, was a part of ancient Jewish folklore and part of the folklore of the ancient world. All the peoples around Israel, and that's why I have so many names there, Lilith, or Lilith, or Lilitu, or Lilith or lilu And there's actually even another one or two. Almost all the cultures around Israel believed in a, basically a, a, a night demon by the name of Lilith, or one of the, you know, one, one of these other names, including the Jews. You know, that, that, and, and she was, she comes really from me, the, the Mesopotamian, the ancient Mesopotamian folklore and demonology. She was considered a demon and, and to the ancient Mesopotamians. Uh, she was essentially a night demon. Uh, some considered her to be a vampire or like the, 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 the mother of vampires. Uh, others considered her to be someone who would, would steal and, and murder children, uh, who would murder Young women on, like, like you know, when they were pregnant or when they were on, on, you know, the verge of getting married. Um, you know, Lilith was considered a a a wretched creature by virtually all the people around Israel. In the in the Middle Ages, again, uh, there there was almost well, I won't say a cult of Lilith, but there was there was a great interest in Lilith again. Uh, amongst the Jews and they came up with this idea that she was Adam's first wife and that she rebelled so much against Adam that she was kicked out of Eden and flew out because in in folklore she had wings and she could fly and she flew out of Eden uh, and, and was banned from Eden and then God made Eve for Adam. But there's no biblical truth to that. And even in the Middle Ages, the most famous uh, rabbi of the Middle Ages, Maimonides, comp- you know, he just, this is just nonsense. But many in the Middle Ages believed it. Many Jews did. But that really comes more from the Middle Ages and not from biblical times. The Lilith, and by the way, many, many um, Mesopotamians believe that she was not just one, like one like, person named Lilith, one like, you know, night demon named Lilith, but a, a, basically a class of demons called the Lilith or the Lilu, uh, and, and they were night demons. They could take on either uh, female or male form. Uh, they, they were sexual demons, uh, you know, who would en, en, enchant young men and young women into sexual acts and, and, and then either either kill them, you know, or, you know, do all, all kind of other crazy stuff. Um, so, you yeah, know, this was very much a belief... In the ancient world, that is not so astonishing because, like I said, the Babylonians, you know, they they were so into demons and stuff; it was crazy. Um, but the, the the astonishing fact is the Bible actually mentions her once. Turn to Isaiah chapter thirty-four. Depending on the translation you have, it will it will either say, you know, Lilith, or it won't. Um, it would be interesting to to see the different translations. Isaiah 33, verses 10 through 14, and this is a um, prophecy against Edom. And God is saying that someday in the future, what he's gonna do to Edom because of their sins against him and against the Jewish people, okay? So he gives this prophecy to Isaiah, and this is what Isaiah says starting at verse 10. This judgment on Edom will never end. The smoke of its burning will rise forever. The land will lie deserted from generation to generation. No one will live there anymore, so it won't be inhabitable by human beings, he's saying. However, other things will live there. It will be haunted by the desert owl and the screech owl, the great owl and the raven. And by the way, all these birds, all these things are... Highly debatable like over what the translation should be. There's no agreement on how they should be translated. And most, well, I won't say most scholars. A lot of scholars believe that these different like, birds that are translated were associated with demons or demonology. Okay, Essentially, it'll be a haunt to demons. For God will measure that land carefully. He will measure it for chaos and destruction. It will be called the land of nothing, and all its nobles will be gone. Look at, at what it says in these next couple verses. Thorns will overrun its palaces. Nettles and thistles will grow in its forts. The ruins will become a haunt for jackals and a home for owls. Desert animals will mingle with hyenas. Their howls filling the night. Wild goats. Some of you may have satyrs. Yes, by the way, it's satyrs. It's in you know, the Bible. You know, that ain't part human, part goat. Um, Wild goats will bleed at one another among, uh, um, uh, among the ruins. And night creatures. How many of you have something else? What do you have? Night birds. Anything else? The literal word translated as night bird or night creature, some translations have night demons. There's even a translation that has vampires. The literal word is Lilith. You know, in Hebrew, that is the word. It says, uh, and the Lilith will come there to rest. So the word Lilith is actually used biblically one time. Now, here's the question. Does this mean that this was a creature that really existed and that's what the Bible says is gonna inhabit The the land of Edom when God finally judges it at the end times. Not necessarily. It's probably more, and most of these things are more figurative. They are figurative for something else. This is an example of God using the folklore of the ancient world as a way of basically saying, look, this is how terrible this is gonna be. You've all heard the, the, the legend of Lilith well the Liliths are gonna live here. That's how bad this is gonna be. It won't be a fit place for, for man or beast, not normal man or beast. It's only gonna be an habitation essentially of demons. That's really kind of what it's saying. So I don't think the Bible is arguing that Liliths are, were real, that there were real like, you know, like these night demons that were kind of similar to vampires. I, I, I don't think that's necessarily what it's arguing. But it is interesting that the Bible uses the term here at least one time. Uh, Probably more of a pejorative to say that's just how awful the land of Edom is going to be someday. It won't be fit for inhabitation by anything other than demons. All right. That's all I got, folks. Pretty wild stuff, isn't it? You're amazed at what's in your Bible sometimes. If we just take a look, there's a whole lot of stuff that's there that we don't even really think about. But here's the thing. God put it there for a reason. You know, we almost think sometimes we shouldn't even be talking about this. Well, it's in the Bible. You know, as Heiser was always liked to say, I'm tired of protecting people from their Bibles. And that was kind of what he was talking about. It's like, look, I've spent my whole life kind of protecting people from what's in the Bible. I'm tired of it. We have to actually look at what the Bible says and deal with it because God put it there. It's there for a reason. So there's creatures in the Bible that we may not be real comfortable with their existence, but the Bible says that at least on some level they exist or did exist. Things like giants or monsters, you know, I, here's just a pet theory of mine. I, why did the ancient people have like ideas that things like vampires and werewolves existed? Well, probably because of what happened with the what came out of the sons of men and the do, sons of God and the daughters of men. Imagine what those creatures would have been like and what the world would have been like with the the violence and the and just the horror of that time. So bad that what was God's testimony? Every single thought in their minds is nothing but evil all the time. I'm going to destroy them all. One righteous man in all the earth. And it's interesting, it's said of him, he, kept, he, was, he was righteous in all his generations. He had kept himself somehow untainted by the blood of these beings for all his time. And God would start over with him. Interestingly, Christ came from his line. Because you couldn't have Christ coming from the line that had been tainted by these demons. So the Bible's fascinating, folks. So hopefully, if nothing else, you, you, you are more fascinated by your Bible today than you were when you walked in here, all right? Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. Lord, um, there are amazing things in your word and things that do not always make us comfortable, but they are there, and, and, and you want us to read it and understand it and to deal with these things. And most of all, you want us to put our faith and our trust in you. And so, Father, that is what we do. We put our, our faith in you. And, and so, Father, we, we know that you are greater than anything that is in this world, uh, that the Spirit of God that lives in us is greater than anything that is in this world. And, Father, you have it all under control. So thankful for we are so thankful for who you are and thank you for all that you do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you, guys. Next week, we're going to look at Jesus the hero. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, that's what it is. I read some stuff about that last night, is, is how uh, the word has, an entomology is kind of how words come to existence and how they develop. Um, Nobody really knows for sure, but it, it, it has come to, people generally today use it in one of two ways. They either use it for a hunter, and they say that that person is a nimrod because they're a hunter, or they mean that that person is an idiot. They're stupid. Um, yeah. And I'll have to go back and take another look. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head how it came to mean that.